All right, we're going to spend some time studying the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, grab your Bible, open it up to Proverbs. If you don't have a Bible, we have strategically placed a Bible near you. Uh, You can reach under the chair and grab one of those black Bibles. We'll be starting off on page 537, starting with Proverbs 13. The series in Proverbs we've subtitled Scandalous Wisdom. And the idea with that subtitle is that it is wisdom from God. It's the truth of how to live and to walk with him, to listen to his voice, to receive grace from God and obey him because of that grace. And yet it's scandalous because it's confusing to our culture. It's odd to our culture that we would actually obey God. And so we've been trying to encourage you that, yes, we need some courage to obey God and not our culture. But even as we do this scandalous, strange thing of obeying God's voice, God gifts us with grace. He makes us more like his son, Jesus. We actually have something to give and and to bless our culture with. And so it takes some courage to obey God and not obey self or culture, but it also gives grace to those around us. It gives us opportunities to love others. We have an extra cheery title this morning. It's Wisdom or Death. Wisdom or Death from Proverbs 13, 14. Here's the dictionary definition of death. Death is defined as the end of life the total and permanent cessation of all the vital functions of an organism. That's a pretty negative definition. Total and permanent cessation of all the vital functions of an organism. The Bible traces this back to our first ancestors, our first parents, Adam and Eve, telling God that they wanted to have the stuff of this world without a relationship of trust with God. And the story of the Bible is that has plunged the world into death. That's spread death when we were actually called as human beings, given this calling to spread paradise, to spread God's goodness. And so Proverbs again and again sets before us this path of wisdom versus the path of death or this fountain of wisdom and life versus death and decay, and the cessation of life. And so throughout history, there's been this kind of legendary concept of a fountain of youth. Have you ever heard a story about a fountain of youth that explorers were trying to find? This kind of got morphed uh, in the medieval age into a search for the Holy Grail. Have you ever heard of the Holy Grail? That's a term for the holy chalice or the holy cup that Christ had communion with his disciples The idea in the medieval age was that the cup that Christ used then was endowed with these magical powers, and it could give you life. It could fend off death. It could be like a fountain of youth. Just to be clear, we believe that there's no cup that's magical beyond the cup of life or the fountain of life, which is Jesus himself. So when Christians take communion, we're not saying the cup is magical. We're saying Jesus is our source of life. And we're commemorating that, we're reliving that, we're symbolizing that, we're trying to dramatize that as we take the cup and the bread and communion. We're saying, Jesus is my only hope, not some magical cup. Yet throughout history, there's been a lot of stories told about these legends of a fountain of youth or this cup of life, this holy grail. One of my favorite 90s movies was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and it was about the search for the holy grail. And so in this movie, they finally get to this treasure room 
where the Holy Grail is stored. And of course, it's protected by a magical knight, which you would expect, right? And so there's this magical knight there telling the people who have found the treasure room, you must choose the right cup. It's up to you to choose this cup of life, this holy grail. And so the bad guy is caught up with Indiana Jones and the heroes of the story. And the bad guy's like, well, I'm not a historian. I'm not sure which one to choose. And so his assistant chooses for him. And his assistant goes to the shelf where there are like 20 or 30 cups and grabs the most beautiful, glittering, jeweled, golden cup on the entire shelf. She takes the cup and, and offers it to the main bad guy who's like, ah, this truly is a cup for the king of kings. He's like, this has got to be the one because it's the most beautiful, it's the most exquisite, the most expensive. So he grabs the cup and he takes some water and he drinks from the water. And it's very dramatic at this point because then as he drinks the water from the magical cup that he thinks is the Holy Grail, the fountain of youth, the fountain of life, he ages like a thousand years and 30 seconds. You know, it's like this kind of cheesy special effects where his face just starts to melt and he turns into a mummy and he just disintegrates. Ah, it's terrible. It's horrible. You see this guy dying right in front of you. And one of the most understated lines in all of moviedom, the magical knight says, he chose poorly. Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) Proverbs sets this choice between life and death before us again and again. Are you and I going to choose wisely or are we going to choose poorly? It's this major theme in biblical wisdom, but really in all ancient Near Eastern wisdom, that there's this path. There's this path of life, this path of death. There's a fountain of life, a fountain of death. There's a a choice that will bring you life, a choice that will bring you death. So we're going to start with our main verse, kind of our starting verse, and then we'll look at other verses again as we follow this theme through Proverbs. We'll start with Proverbs 13, 14. Proverbs 13, verse 14. Again, it's found on page 537 in the Black Bibles. Proverbs 13, 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Let me read it again. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. We said this again and again through the series. Proverbs is inviting us to listen to the very voice of God. The teaching of the wise is the passing on of God's word. God's word. Jesus himself is a fountain of life. And that enables us to turn away from the snares of death that are grabbing hold of of all of us in this world. So let me pray that God's Spirit would be with us. We live in a world of both life and death. We live in this world where we daily make choices that are uh, leading us to flourishing and good things in life, and then we make a choice the next day that bring in more death, and we need this fountain of life. Jesus promises when he goes away from his disciples, I'm sending the Comforter. I'm sending my Holy Spirit to help you. So let's pray that he would open our our minds and our hearts to listen to him today. Let's pray. God, we pray that your Spirit would join us and enable us to hear, pay attention, and obey your word. God, help us to receive the teachings of the wise. We know that ultimately that's listening to your voice. We pray that your spirit would supernaturally open us up 
Make us tender to you, God. Help us to stop running away. Help us to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again and again, we've made the mistake of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? We, just like Adam and Eve, say, I want the stuff, but I don't want you, God. We make that same decision over and over again. And Proverbs actually repeats this problem twice in the book of Proverbs. In both Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16, it repeats that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to a man or a woman, a human being, okay, ladies, it's you too, all of us. There's a way that seems right to people, but in the end it leads to death. So we've got to recognize that problem. That's in all of us, right? We have this habit of wandering off the path of life and choosing death. But Proverbs 13, 14 promises the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Well, I took a, uh, a, just a list of all the different words for death in Proverbs, piled those all up together. Just so you know, linguistically, if you want to do a word search, there are three main words that you'll want to search for. One is sheol, okay? Uh, and that's a Hebrew word that kind of just means the general realm of the dead. Kind of like the Hebrew, uh, kind of like the Greek concept of Hades, we have Sheol. And so it's this murky place of the dead, right? Uh, it's vague, it's mysterious, it doesn't give us a lot of information. So that's one of the words for death in the Old Testament. Another word is Abaddon, Abaddon. And this means something more like destruction or judgment, okay? And so that's another word that gets played out as death or the afterlife in the Hebrew Old Testament. And then finally, an English word uh, that you would look up would be death itself, death or dying. So I looked up all these verses, looked up all these words in Proverbs, and just kind of tried to compile some main themes. And so here are the three main themes that I see as we work through Proverbs. Number one, death is mysterious. Death is mysterious. Number two, death creeps into this life. Death creeps into life, right? It's breaking into the now. And then number three, death is not the end. Biologically, it's the end, but spiritually, death is not the end. So number one, death is mysterious. Death is mysterious. We need to have a humble posture and recognize we don't have all the answers. Death is mysterious. We don't pretend that we understand all of it. There are some clear verses in Proverbs that kind of talk about this mystery. And one thing that you'll hear from Hebrew scholars, if you study this, is that death is even more mysterious in the Old Testament than in the New. So that's just a basic fact. And sometimes scholars are teaching this because it is a fact. There's just less data in the Old Testament than the New about death and the afterlife and the resurrection, okay? But what I want to kind of combat that with is sometimes liberal scholars take that to say, so that means you know, it's a different story. And then these Christians were just making stuff up in the New Testament. And they kind of try to take that difference of less information and, and widen this gap. And what I want you to understand is when we read all the Old Testament verses, it's saying the same story. We just have less details. And so if you come to this church, you, you'll hear this hobby horse that I have of the Old Testament and the New Testament are saying the same story. There are differences There's more clarity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but it's the same story. It's God's holiness and justice is something that we've all fallen from, and we need his atoning, sacrificial, forgiving work to make us right and to bring us into his presence. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. And so we want to start off, though, acknowledging, yeah, death death is mysterious. We don't have all the answers. We have more answers in the New Testament, 
But still, we don't know everything that we want to know. So Proverbs 11.7 says it this way. You can just flip back a couple of pages in your Bible. Proverbs 11.7 says, When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. What is this teaching us? When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. This tells us one of the things that the Old Testament repeats in the Old Testament Uh, one of the things about death that is repeated in the Old Testament, and that is that death is a time of judgment for the wicked. It is the end of hope for the wicked. Now again, we don't get a lot of details about this. We get these concepts of judgment. We get this concept of the day of wrath, of God's judgment on wickedness. And what we recognize that's clarified in the New Testament is this is shaped out into this doctrine we would call hell in the New Testament. It's the most horrible, scary doctrine that Christians believe, right? That if we choose to walk away from God, God says, okay, you can have eternal life that's actually eternal death because it's without the presence of God. Christians, again, this is mysterious, debate the details of this. Some Christians believe that hell is actually a burning up and that it's a, you know, a process with a start and an end and you eventually burn up and you're done, right? Um, I believe the more traditional view Because I believe that humans are eternal, I believe that hell is eternal. Either way, it's horrible, right? (laughs) Jesus is really clear. It's horrible. You don't want this. You don't want life without God because life without God is not life. It's just more death. And so this verse 11.7 is speaking to this this terrifying reality. The life apart from God is, is eternal death. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. That second verse is kind of an indicator of often what the wicked's hope is. The wicked's hope is often in wealth and just in this present life. Jesus says, if that's where your hope lies, that's, that's all you're going to get. The other verse, Proverbs 15, 11, flip over a couple of pages, talks more about the mystery of all of this. Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon, the place of the dead, the place of destruction, lie open before the Lord. What does that mean? It's clear to him. It's mysterious to you and me, but it's clear to him. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man? We don't even understand ourselves, but God understands us. We don't understand death, but God understands death. Death is mysterious. God understands what we do not. That's one of the important things that we learn here. Death is mysterious to us, but death is not mysterious to God. So I grabbed a picture of a dark room. Uh, You can barely see anything because it's a dark room. (laughs) See a little light coming through a window there. And when you're in a dark place, you run into things. You're unfamiliar with the territory. If you're at home, once you've lived in a home long enough, I don't know what this is like for uh, army families that move a lot, But for us, you know, we've been in the same house 16 years. I know where everything is. When I get up in the middle of the night and I'm walking in the dark, I generally know not to run into the couch because I know it's here and not here, right? Like you kind of learn where things are. But then you're in a new place, like if you're in a hotel, you run into things. It's really frustrating, right? You're like, I don't know where I am. All I see is this red dot on the ceiling from the fire alarm. And, you know, I don't know what's happening. It's confusing. It's frustrating to us. And we just have to recognize that. There's there's stuff we don't know about death that kind of makes us scared makes us uncomfortable. Death is mysterious. We don't, we don't know all the answers. But as I said, we know some things. Now, there's two different directions we can go with mystery 
with things we don't understand, death itself, suffering in general in this world, uh, we can go two different directions. We can either rail against God because of it, or we can allow it to push us towards God. We can allow it to push us towards Him in faith, saying, God, I don't understand. Will you help me? Will you meet me here? Now, there's this scientific term that's often used called the God of the gaps theory. Have anyone ever heard this phrase, the God of the gaps? And this is often used by atheistic scientists to say when primitive or dumb people don't know how something works scientifically, they just say God did that, right? And so the God of the gaps is often a way of arguing that when there's mystery, you make this kind of shortcut to like, oh, well, God's the answer. And it's almost like an intellectual laziness. What I want to take us to is this place where we continue to press for intellectual answers, but we know that we have a relational hope, and that is God himself. The Bible never condemns us for wanting answers. We can look for answers, right? It's arguable from history that modern science was created by Christians who designed the empirical method because they said God has made the world in an understandable way so we can figure things out. That's where modern science came from, and then it just became a cult where people worship natural knowledge. And so understanding things is a, is a beautiful exercise that we can engage in because God made us knowing creatures. But at some point, we run up against a wall where we just don't know enough, right? So instead of the God of the gaps, we have the God of grace. And the God of grace is a relational, personal God who meets us in our ignorance. He meets us in our suffering. He meets us in the places where we don't have all the answers. And that is our hope. That's the hope in the Old Testament, and that's the hope in the New Testament. A personal God of grace and kindness. It's always okay to ask why, but God's answer is often, trust me. That's often the answer that God gives. Here are a couple of New Testament verses about the mystery of of death, the mystery of the future. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's a hope that even though we don't know all the answers, we trust Jesus. It's going to work out. And then this is uh, explained a little bit in Ephesians 3.20. This is adjacent to this concept. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, to him be glory forever. And so we have this God who's able to do more than we can even ask, more than you can even pray for, will be answered in heaven when we see him face to face. And so we can cry and we can seek answers and we can look for more information and we can struggle against the mystery. But in the end, we also have to trust God that he's with us and he's walking through these mysteries and the difficulties of death. And so when Christians face death of a loved one, it is genuinely something to grieve. It's genuinely something hard and difficult. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope like the world does. We grieve with hope. And so there's that, that back and forth in the Christian life. There's that honesty of death is hard. Ignorance is hard. Mystery is hard. But I trust God. I'm going to grieve the hard things and I'm going to trust that Jesus is enough and continue to walk with him. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Now, point two is that death creeps into life. 
death creeps into life, into the present, into this world that we live in. We live in a world, the time in history that we live in, is a time after the, the complete entrance of death through the sin of Adam and Eve, and that just multiplied and spread and uh, came throughout the whole world, and the complete hope of the resurrection that came through the death, the life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? So we live in this time between the times where those two worlds are overlapping, where life is creeping in by faith in Jesus and death is creeping in by our continued uh, willful sin and disobedience and walking away from him. Both things are living side by side in the world that we uh, live in. They're both together. Death creeps into life. Now, Proverbs talks about four, I'm going to use four S's because I'm a preacher. I like to do that kind of thing. Four S's for how death creeps into this life. So sin, that's kind of covers everything. Sickness, that's kind of external everything. And then the specifics of stealing and sexual immorality. Those are the four big S's that Proverbs hits again and again. Sin, sickness, sexual immorality, stealing. These are ways that death creeps into the present. Now there's a million other ways, right? Basically any sin, anything that's broken in this world, we could say, okay, that's a, that's a reality of death creeping in. And we look forward to that being fixed in the resurrection when Jesus wipes away every tear from our face. Well, let's look at the text. Proverbs 5, through 23. We'll flip back a few pages to Proverbs 5. This is in the context of sexual immorality, but this, this applies to everything. No matter, no matter what your pet sin is, it's all a reality of death creeping in. So Proverbs 5, through 23 says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin, right? So it's this idea of a trap of cords of ropes wrapping around us when we sin and disobey God. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. So it's this picture of of death creeping in and grabbing hold of us. Uh, Again and again, in the last 20 years, this has come out in the zombie literature, right? Like it's been a big craze, zombie movies, zombie books. It's been really popular. And that's kind of a symbolism of people that are alive and yet dead, kind of this creep of death into our reality. We know that's not the way things are supposed to be. When we disobey God, we're zombies. When we walk with God, we're bringing life. We're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Proverbs 9, 16 through 18. Flip over a few pages to Proverbs 9, verses 16 through 18. It says it this way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Now, this is the invitation of folly inviting the simple to follow her. So folly says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So again, the picture is, man, it looks sweet, it looks good, it looks fun, but you're actually going to a party with the dead. It's actually zombies wanting to eat your brains, right? It's like, this is not going to go well. And so one of my favorite illustrations when I think about death and the the cords of death, the snares of sin, uh, is the monkey trap. I grabbed a picture of a monkey with this hand stuck in a gourd. Any of you ever got experience hunting monkeys? Do we have any monkey hunters here? Okay. I'm just wanting to check my story, right? This is one of those urban myths. I assume this is really how people hunt monkeys. But apparently, 
a, a monkey uh, will reach into a can or a jar or a gourd if he can get his wrist in there, right? Slip his hand in there and grab hold of the thing and then he won't let go of whatever you've put in there to attract him, whatever the bait is, right? It might be fruit, it might be a jewel, something shiny, right? He's got his hand on it and he won't let go. And he's snared by his own desires. <laughs> Men with average or above average size hands experience this with Pringle cans. So... <laughs> A lot of you have had this experience. Yeah, yeah. I've learned a trick. I just turn it upside down and just dump them all out now after sometimes getting trapped for several days. And it was terrifying. But the picture, in all seriousness, is a picture of sin, right? It's our own desires. Like, we can't, we can't let go. I've got to have this. No, God, I need this to live. I need this for life, and it's killing us. It's the snares. It's the cords of death wrapping around us. Sin is always irrational because it always promises something that it does not deliver. And it's so confusing because it often delivers short-term pleasure. We, we talk about that. We don't want to be naive, right? The reason we keep going back to sin is it's often fun. But it's this slow death that is grabbing hold of us, wrapping its snares around us. And anyone who's continued to walk in sin for months and years can tell you this is true. It always starts out fun, but it always ends badly. So what do we do? Well, there's uh, some implications in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 9, right? It's the, the choices, right? The turning to the voice of God or the turning to folly, right? Choices we make. Discipline is a word that comes up in Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, in Proverbs 19, 16, it talks about keeping commandments, right? We want to keep commandments. When we actually do what God says, that frees us from sin in a practical level. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son for there's hope, right? So there's real training we can engage in. We talk about this a lot with people that there's structure and there's grace. And we need both things. Just obedience, like stop sinning. Structure, discipline. That's a real important part of your walk with God. And as you engage in structure and discipline and new behaviors, that's going to bring freedom to your life. But what Christians have to stress, because this is, what's, this is what separates us from every other religion, is that that is never enough to bring us salvation, to bring us into the presence of God. The only thing that can awaken our hearts, that can forgive our sin, that can restore us to our, our family place in God's family is his initiating love on our behalf. Is the God who sent Jesus into this world, who took our sin upon his shoulders, who died in our place and rose from the dead, proving that he really did conquer that sin and that death that had a hold on us. So the first Corinthians 15 can say, oh, death, where is your stinger? Oh, death, where... Where is your sting? Where is your poison? Where is it gone now? Because it's been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we trust in Jesus, and then we walk in new behaviors. We're saved by Jesus, by His grace, by His, His forgiveness, by trusting in Him. We're not saved by our new behaviors. But once we trust in Jesus, we have a new heart. He begins to write His law on our heart. He begins to give us new desires. We begin to see step by step that what he says is actually good. We want to keep his commandments. We begin to change. And for all of us, that's, that's up and down, right? We have good seasons and bad seasons. But the Christian life is one of both trusting in his grace and learning to obey his voice. 
Both of those are realities of walking in new life. So as we think about how to apply this, I want to think about how to apply this culturally. So in your own life, as you're fighting an addiction or a pet sin, you want to set new structure, new disciplines, but you also want to trust the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. Well, culturally, this can get confusing because we just live in a world where death is always creeping in, where paganism and false ways of living are always creeping in. So I want to give you, because of the time of year, kind of a case study on how to deal with this culturally. So Halloween, anybody ever heard of Halloween? It's this thing happening tomorrow, right? It's, a, it's kind of a, a cultural holiday, and Christians have different opinions on this. So what I want to do is I don't want to give you the final word on what Christians are supposed to think about Halloween. What I want to do is try to teach you what Christians are supposed to think about interacting with the pagan world. And I think today, after you've heard what I have to say, we'll walk out and you'll have different strategies, right? Because you're all missionaries commissioned to your neighborhood and your workplace to represent Jesus. And you're going to use different tactics and different strategies to do that. But let me give you some principles. 1 Corinthians 10 lays out some principles for us of how to combat the death of a pagan world that's creeping into all corners of our life. How do we live with a culture that to varying degrees is sold out to paganism, that's sold out to death? Paul deals with this a lot in 1 Corinthians, and we preached a sermon on it a year ago, so if you want to go look up that sermon, you can get the full, the, the full meal deal, 50 minutes on this topic from a year ago. It's called Glory War from 1 Corinthians 10. But some just basic things that Paul teaches there. Number one, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says it's all about the glory of God. No matter what you do, right? If you participate in some sort of pagan thing or you don't participate in some sort of pagan thing, what's the goal? The goal is the glory of God. He also says, what's a secondary goal? A secondary goal is to love your brothers. Are you loving the people involved? If you go to a party or you don't go to a party, are you loving those people and glorifying God? Then he talks about revealing the cross, revealing the message to people. He actually spends a whole chapter on it in chapter 9 and kind of comes back to that theme in chapter 10 and says, the goal is always that people would see Jesus and understand the truth of who he is. So if you go to that party or if you don't go to the party, are you helping people to understand who Jesus is? He gives a very specific example because in 1 Corinthians, it's about meat offered to idols, right? And he says, just to be clear, the meat is not magical. The meat's not magical and it can't mess you up. But demons are a real thing, and you don't want to be involved with them, right? So how do you determine when to worry about the meat that's been offered to demons and when to not worry about it? And he gives a specific example. He says, you know, it's fine to eat any meat anywhere, anytime, because there's no magic attached to the objects. But he does say this, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. Basically, what he's setting up is, it may or may not be sacrificial pagan stuff. Who cares? But if someone is inviting you into sacrificial pagan worship, say no. Do you see the difference? It's like on the one hand, you're saying, yeah, it's no big deal, whatever. We're just eating some snacks. On the other hand, you're like, oh, this, this person's inviting me into some pagan weirdness. I, I can't. I've got to say no, right? Because my allegiance is to Jesus. And so this plays out in like every holiday, basically. Everything we do there's some mix of like pagan traditions and Christian traditions. It's all mixed together. And so the goal is to meet your neighbors, to communicate the love of God to them, to glorify God, and to obey your own conscience, right? So again, we're going we're gonna to walk out of here and have different methods. 
The final method that Paul gives is in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, and he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So I'd recommend to you if you're like, yeah, I'm still, I'm still not sure what to do. You know, I got the matrix, glorify God, love people, preach the gospel, obey my conscience, but I'm still confused about what to do. Well, find a good model. Paul knows he's a sinner and he doesn't do everything perfectly, but he still says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's okay to follow models. They're big brothers and big sisters in the faith that I know you look up to. And you're like, well, well, what did you do about this? How did you handle this issue with the kids? Or how did you handle this ethical issue at work? Or how did you handle this holiday issue? And they can give you a model to follow. It doesn't mean you have to obey everything they say. It just, it just means it's okay to ask people for help as well and say, hey, you can, you can give me some advice on this topic. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The last point is that death is not the end. Death is not the end. And again, it's more murky in the Old Testament. There's less data. There's less information in the Old Testament. But still, we know in the Old Testament that death is not the end. Something that's made very clear in the New Testament is foreshadowed, is talked about a little bit in the Old Testament. So we see this in Proverbs 14.32 and Proverbs 11.4. So flip over to Proverbs 14.32. Proverbs 14.32 says this, The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. We have a contrast between the wicked and the righteous, between someone being overthrown and someone finding refuge. So again and again, these general ideas are clear in the Old Testament. The wicked are facing judgment in death. The righteous face hope and refuge in death. Proverbs 11.4 says it this way. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. We talked about this early on in Proverbs that a lot of what Solomon did was he actually collected some pagan Proverbs. And he he took the ones that were true and he rejected the ones that were wrong. There's a lot of Proverbs in here that are found in Egyptian literature, right? But here he's rejecting Egyptian wisdom because Egyptian wisdom is if you have enough gold... And if you can build yourself a pyramid, you're going to have success in the afterlife. And here, the author is saying, no, it's not going to work that way. Riches don't profit in the day of wrath, in the day of of judgment, in the end. If riches are your only hope, then death will be the end. Death will be without hope. But righteousness delivers from death. Now, one thing that the New Testament clarifies really beautifully for us. Proverbs hints at this, right? Proverbs talks about really the only way to righteousness is through atonement. The only way to righteousness is through the steadfast love of God, through trusting in the Lord with all your heart. The New Testament really clarifies this for us. We never have a righteousness of our own. We only have a gifted righteousness that comes from God. Whereas we come to him with empty hands and say, God, I need your help. I need your righteousness. I need your forgiveness. Will you save me? And when we ask him to save us, he will. When we entrust our souls to Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sin, he gives us 
His resurrection righteousness. He gives us His resurrection power so that death is truly not the end. One of my favorite illustrations of this from the biological world is, is the butterfly. It's, it's sort of a cliche, but if you just stop and watch a chrysalis become a butterfly, a worm, turn into this incredible, amazing creature, it's, it's mind-blowing. I grabbed a picture here of chrysalis at different stages of development and a butterfly emerging from one of them. It's amazing. If you have kids, make sure your kids get to see this. Like This is just one of those things you, you need to see. You need to experience it in this world. It's a little message of hope and transformation that God has, has wired in to the biological world. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Death is not the end if you trust in Christ. It's hinted at, again, in Proverbs, Proverbs 13.12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Proverbs 12.28, in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway, there is no death. So there's two different ways we can go, two different choices, right? There's a choice of trusting God, or there's a choice of doing life on our own. Doing life on our own, saying, hey, just listening to my own desires, that's going to save me. Amassing riches, that's going to save me. Or we can come with the open hands of faith to God and say, God, I trust you. Will you save me? Will your steadfast love protect me, atone for my sin, give me new life? 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the one that talks about Christ making us a new creation, right? The transformation of the butterfly. Well, he clarifies this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The mechanics of how God does this comes just a few verses later. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We actually become righteous because God gives it to us in Jesus. Not because we've earned it, not because we've made every right decision, but he gifts it to us in Jesus and then it works its way out in our life. Then we stumble forward in obedience. Then we have that new heart and we're like, you know what, Jesus, now I trust you. Now I want to do what you say. Because I see how kind you are. I see how gracious you are. And that's the call of wisdom, is to listen to the kind voice of God so that we can obey the teachings of God. Proverbs 13, 14, again, we'll summarize here. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. It's not just a theme in Proverbs, but Jesus hits on this a lot. We've talked about this in John chapter 4. And in John chapter 7, he talks about how he is really that fountain of life. How if we come to him to drink, then fountains of living water will spring up within us. We will become a fountain of life. Ourself will begin to be able to speak these words of wisdom and invite others into this fountain of life. It's truly amazing. This is contrasted with the negative side of disobedience with this fountain imagery in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've built cisterns for themselves. They've built their own fountains. They've built their own wells. He says, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, here, here are the two evils. Number one evil is you've forsaken God because he he's really good. 
He's the only source of life. But the second evil is then we begin digging out these little muddy cisterns to try to hold our own water and our own sin and our own addictions and our own disobedience. And they, they won't hold water. They won't give us life. They just cause more and more death. And so again, we, we end with the words of Jesus. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus promises that the well of eternal life, the springs of living water will then well up within us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you give us life. We recognize, Lord, that today many of us have very hard choices to make. There might be someone that we need to call and say, I'm done with this. I can't, I can't participate in this anymore. There might be a habit that we need to stop, that we need to ask for support and help, that we need to join a group and have other people pray for us, Lord. There are big changes that we need to make because of the snares of death that are wrapped around us. But we can do these things because you truly are a God of grace. You're the God who met us right where we are, who joined us in our suffering, who came after us and took our sin upon yourself. So we thank you for that. And we pray that the glory of your kindness and grace to us would transform us, would make us a new creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.